On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we are talking about Trudeau, not Justin, Pierre, because his name was trending the other day with people saying, wait a second, if we're going to start tearing down statues of everybody who did anything that might have been negative towards other groups, what about Pierre Trudeau in the white paper? Surely his statue should come down. His name should be taken off the airport. Should it? We'll talk about that. Sticking with the Trudeau and Prime Minister theme, there is a report out saying that it's going to cost tens of millions, almost $200 million to fix Canada's heritage buildings. There are six of them, including 24 Sussex Drive. Should we be doing this? Should we be spending our money on this? And on the weekend, Joey Chestnut, competitive eater, ate 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes at the Coney Island hot dog eating competition for July 4th. What happens to a human body when you put that much hoof and snout into it? Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today on this scorching surface of the sun-like Monday here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Glad you are with us. It is a little warm out there. It's National Bikini Day, by the way. It really is. So somehow fits in with everything, although a little hint, I'm not wearing one. Hmm. Uh, but that's probably for the best. In fact, no, that's not probably. That is absolutely for the best. Even if, well, I'll just leave it there. Uh, glad you're with us, though. We have a lot to get to today. We've got a full slate lined up for the entire week, quite honestly. This is, uh, this is the... Are we in the dog days? of? We're not quite in the dog days of summer, but we are into summer. And this is when things generally slow down, but not here. There is no shortage of things to talk about here. A fascinating, um, maybe unexpected, but certainly intriguing little twist on something that is happening around our country. Uh, Last week, if you were on Twitter, you may have noticed that Trudeau was trending. Not Justin, Pierre. The dad, yes. Um, Some people who were on Twitter, on other social media avenues as well, are now arguing that if you're going to be tearing down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald and Queen Victoria and Eggert and Ryerson and changing street names and school names because of past misdeeds, well, perhaps Pierre Elliott Trudeau should be removed from the public square and his name taken off the airport in Montreal. Because back when he was prime minister, they say, The white paper was authored and that was not friendly. That was some say that was, that was going to be bleaching history, cultural cleansing, whatever you want to call it. Um, Residential schools were still open when he was prime minister. Well, now not only are these tweets happening, there is a petition that is going well over 10,000 signatures have already been generated to get rid of Pierre Elliott Trudeau's statue in Vaughan and other things. Now, I, for the record, I'm generally not in favor of removing statues and doing other things because I don't believe that rewriting or covering over or bleaching history changes it. But others clearly do favor this stuff. And if we are going to start getting rid of everybody who's got skeletons in their closet, should Trudeau the senior be canceled as well? Wayne Petrosi is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University who joins us now. Professor, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Is it not 
kind of inevitable that if we're going to be, or if people, and not we necessarily, but if people are going to be targeting all of those who have done wrong or been in power during times when wrong things were done, that eventually the spotlight is going to broaden and broaden and broaden and start to capture some people who may you may not have expected right off the bat with this? You know, I, I think in this case of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the only conclusion you can reach is that the author of this uh, petition clearly has never read a thing that Pierre Trudeau wrote as an academic. Uh, he is someone who has always argued, he's a liberal philosophically, who believes that rights are only invested in individuals, not communities. It's an argument that led him to spend much of his life fighting against ethnic nationalism in Quebec. He, was, he never accepted that Quebec had an inherent right to anything. It was sovereign. So why would he be inconsistent and say, oh, by the way, when it comes to Aboriginals, they do? These people should have spent some time doing a little bit of reading, and perhaps they would have come to a different conclusion. It, it's so silly. I think, though, that you can make a case with a number. You know, some of them are more complicated, for sure. The Sir John A. Macdonald is a very complicated situation right now, but some of them, you know, the, the, the situation with Henry Dundas in the, in the street in Toronto, um, there are people who say, no, that history is being wrongly interpreted about Henry Dundas. There are, there are politicians and there are public figures where their story, depending on how you want to look at it, is either misinterpreted or they are being, they were in the wrong. It, it becomes complicated. Oh, no question. It, 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 it's complicated. And, you know, one has to be very careful uh, when, when engaging in this kind of uh, retrospective analysis that we don't uh, essentially uh, replace the past with our own view of what it should have looked like. And see, I agree with you a thousand percent on that one. That's why I said off the top that I, I, I generally don't agree with this because it, 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 first of all, it is applying our modern lens to what was happening in the past. And, and I don't think that it gets rid of what happened in the past just by removing these things. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you are going to start tearing down or getting rid of anybody that's got any problem, anyone that was in politics or in power when these things were happening, you do start to capture an awful lot of people that you may not have expected to. Well, you know, one of the things we have to keep in mind is, is, is that you're right. It can't be done with a broad brush. You're, you're right to emphasize, if, in, in the case of some individuals, it's complicated. But I think where you have instances of, of, a, of a political leader who, you know, exercised decisions to, that led to a situation which we now, which we view as inappropriate now, and I think one could argue it should have been able to view it then, uh, in the same fashion, that, that's one thing. But you, but to, to just simply identify, because you rightly mentioned, these schools were in one form or another in parts of the country, one part of the country or another, were in place for 100 years. And what does that mean? Does that mean that eventually or essentially anyone elected to public office at, at the federal level in, in the last 100 years uh, is somehow uh, has to be cast out? Uh, you, you know, the complexity gets lost in these overarching, simplistic assertions of uh, righteousness. 
Mm. I wonder if you could explain. Now, many people listening, I, I don't mean to be patronizing at all. Many people listening know exactly what the white paper was that is the maybe the focus of this whole discussion around Pierre Elliott Trudeau and his statue and everything else. Um, explain, if you can, for a few seconds, what the white paper was for the few who don't know and why this might be that flashpoint for those who would say, well, if you're going to take everything down of people who were involved, here's why Pierre Elliott Trudeau would find himself in the crosshairs. Well, it, 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 the white paper, you know, started from, as I said, Trudeau's fundamental premise, and, and that uh, even though it was authored by others, that rights are invested in individuals. It's as individuals that we, we, we hold rights and we interact with one another as equals. And he believed that uh, until 1970, uh, the legislation and the framework put in place for Aboriginal people uh, did not follow that that concept. Uh, in fact, you know, it left them in a, in a position of uh, subordination to uh, officials in, in, in the Ministry of Indian Northern Affairs uh, as the federal government generally and of the provinces in some cases. And he believed that was untenable, that they should be treated equally. And he thought equality in his case meant that they should have the same rights as others do, every other Canadian does, and they should, on that basis, begin, interact with the w- wider community of which they're a part. And the white paper, you know, so suggested getting rid of the Indian Act, getting rid of the different categories of status um, as, that are accorded to Indians, and starting from a principle of the fundamental equality of, the, of individuals. The there are those, and you know this as well as I do, as well as most people listening. There are those who say, "Well, you know, the Indian Act, though, or the White Paper, pardon me, was cultural assimilation, or was was viewed by some people as that." And again, we go back to the complication of this. If you view what he did as an attempt at cultural assimilation, he is a bad, bad man. If you view what he did as filling out or following his philosophy and trying to make everyone equal. He may be a very good man, but it becomes your political and philosophical point of view about where he stands. Well, you know, keep this in mind, though. Um, He was making the argument that rights should only be vested in individuals, not in communities, however they're defined. And typically, in in the world we live in, uh, communities have been defined on the basis of ethnicity or, or or. or blood, if you will, all right? Nationalism in the modern period is almost entirely ethnic nationalism. And he saw it manifest in Quebec, and he thought both in terms of its, its exaggerated claims, as well as it, the extent to which it left, for example, in Quebec. So if uh, Quebec is the home of the French people, what happens to all the Italians living in Montreal? Where are they supposed to go? Are, are they not citizens? And in fact, it led him to make the argument that we need to embrace a kind of nationalism that's civic, that's based on shared values. And multiculturalism, he placed at the heart of that. So Canada is one of the very few countries that actually identifies citizenship, not on the basis of ethnicity, not on the basis of race or any other defining characteristic of that sort, but on the basis of sharing a set of values. That's what defines us. And we're quite unique as as nations go in that regard 
I think, in a very, very good way. So I, 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 I understand where he was coming from and what, what he was trying to get to. There is, and I've used the word complicated a few times, and because I, I think it is a complicated situation. What we saw in the last number of weeks, and then again over the long weekend, we saw the Queen Victoria statues be pulled down. We've seen Sir Johnny McDonald's statues be yanked down. We've seen Egerton Ryerson's statue be pulled down in Toronto. Um, a variety of others as well, or, or, or painting or put on, vandalized, whatever else. What would happen if the Pierre Trudeau statue got pulled down by those who disagreed with it. I mean, does that, is it just a natural progression or do you think that we, do you think something happens to those? Because nothing has happened. I don't think there's been any charges to anybody who's pulled down any of these other statues. Do we get to a point when we just say anybody can pull anything down? No, I don't think we do. And, and I, I really think that uh, this, this uh, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau thing is, I think, a bit of a tempest in a teapot. As I said, you have to be, uh, as an author of this kind of petition, you have to be remarkably uninformed to make such uh, broad-based assertions uh, about Mr. Trudeau. And that, you're, you're hearing this from someone who I never voted for the man in my life, but that doesn't mean I'm going to misrepresent his views mm. just because I didn't vote for him. Politically, I mean, we do have an election coming up, uh, we think. And I don't know that this becomes an issue or not, but assuming that the discussion of past deeds of past people continues to fester, and I see no reason that's going away, is this something that you anticipate Justin Trudeau is going to have to address at some point? No, I really don't think so. Uh, I, 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 I really do believe that uh, overwhelmingly Canadians are, are very much um, supportive of the idea that we are a country of many different peoples, of many different backgrounds, and that makes us both unique and it makes us something, uh, an experiment worth pursuing and nurturing and encouraging. So I, I, I don't think we're going to head down that kind of rabbit hole. And I don't disagree with you on those points. I also think, though, that we can be knee-jerk and reactive. And, you know, if, if if certain statues are being pulled down, I think there are going to be some people who say, well, then we should do all of them. And I, I just, I say, what, your point may be 100% correct. I'm just wondering how it just stops at a certain point. I, I just don't know where it stops or why all of a sudden demands for these things would stop if we're on a bit of a roll here. I mean, you're right. I mean, it, uh, there, there's always those who, who would be opportunistic. But I think, you know, opportunism exhausts itself uh, in, in, in fairly short order. Um, I, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I'm not worried that we're going to uh, put ourselves in a place where we're essentially going to uh, invalidate the accomplishments and, and the work of everyone who came before us in the political arena. It's an interesting discussion. Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good day. Let's take a quick break here on the Scott Thompson Show. Back right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read a report the other day uh, that pointed out that Canada's six official residences, if you didn't know that we have six official residences, a 24 Sussex Drive, Rideau Hall, Stornoway, Seven Rideau Gate, Herringate Lake, and The Farm, uh, those six 
official national residences need a combined $175 million in repairs. It's a staggering sum of money to combat deterioration that has them in really, really poor condition. Now, I think probably some people listening, as I listed those, said, okay, I know 24 Sussex Drive, and of course, I know Rideau Hall, and I've probably heard of Stornoway, but I'm not sure about the other ones. Well, maybe that's, uh, there's, there's a bunch of issues at play here. Maybe that talks about how poorly we do at tooting our own horn in this country and, and playing up the great things that we have. I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it is embarrassing, I think. It is embarrassing when the home of the prime minister is in such terrible rundown shape that he can't even live in it. He's living in a cottage on the grounds of Rideau Hall. And this report says that just to get it back to the point where a prime minister, this one or anyone in the future, could move back in, it's going to cost $37 million just to fix up 20, uh, 24 Sussex Drive. It's just... It's a massive problem in a country, of course, that is hemorrhaging money, our debt and deficit. I mean, once upon a time, maybe we said, oh, 175 million. Yeah, let's do it. Now, we don't necessarily have the money. So what do we do with this? Natalie Bull is the executive director for the National Trust of Canada. If you're not familiar with them, it is dedicated to promoting the conservation, understanding, and appreciation of our nation's heritage buildings, historic places, and cultural landscapes. She joins us now. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hello, Scott. Thanks for joining me. Um, I can't imagine, Natalie, that in the United States, and I'm just using the states, you can pick any European country if you want to, that any other place would let its government buildings, the White House or whatever else, get to this state. Where's the? Where has been our pride in our symbols and our places that this country owns? It's, it's a really good question. And what's interesting, too, is that the the future of 24 Sussex has been hotly debated at some points um, in, in our history. Not too recently, there have been conversations about whether it should just be torn down and a new building constructed. Uh, but I think many Canadians would agree that it, it's an iconic place. That it's a place where history has happened. And We will reconnect with Natalie, obviously just a little technical issue there. But yes, 24 Sussex Drive uh, certainly has been historic. Going back uh, 1867, it was built and it's been the home of prime minister after prime until recently now, because again, the condition of that home, that maybe the most, I don't know, is there a more famous address in this country? Maybe there is. It's hard to think of one. It's hard to think of another place in this country or too many other places in this country that are simply known by their address. But it's a, one of, if not the most famous addresses in this country, and we have let it deteriorate to the point where it is not livable right now. As I say, the Trudeau family doesn't live in 24 Sussex Drive, where he did as a child, interestingly enough, with his father, because this place is just in such, such bad shape. We are rejoined by Natalie. Sorry about the technical snafu there, Natalie, but thanks for coming back. Sorry, Scott. I think we have a bad connection. Well, so what we're talking about the the fact that other places would never let their landmarks or their cultural homes fall into this kind of disrepair, I don't think. At least countries that are not totally bankrupt or under war or something like that. Does it surprise right. you then that it's been 60 years, apparently, 
that Sussex Drive has gone without any kind of major or significant upgrades. Like we, we, we have to expect that if you're going to go 60 years without doing anything, you're going to have problems. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. Imagine your own home or your own office, um, the state that it would be in with that kind of deferred maintenance. Uh, and when we talk about heritage buildings, we, we often say that deferred maintenance really amounts to demolition by neglect. We really put these important places at risk. I, I think in Canada, um, it, it's really been a sort of politicized question. I think no sitting prime minister has wanted to be seen as the person who threw millions of dollars at um, at renovating the, the house that he or she lives in. Um, and I know in, I'm thinking back to 2008, when Prime Minister Harper basically refused to vacate the premises, even though it was, re- was recognized that there was some substantial work needed then. Um, and interesting, too, that in 2008, the, the dollar figure to renovate 24 Sussex was, was at $10 million, which seemed like a lot of money at that point. And now, 13 years later, we're looking at a bill of about $36 million. So I'm wondering... Um, I'm wondering, Natalie, if part of what you're talking about, where no prime minister or their party wants to be the one to bring this forward, because it looks like self-serving if you're doing this while you're in office. I wonder if that would be a different discussion we'd be having if we also, as a country and the government, had used 24 Sussex more publicly, it had been more in the public eye, because we know the address, but I bet you that most people could not picture in their mind. The White House, we can all picture it. 24 Sussex, we know of it. I wonder if it needs to be more public so that then we'd be more proud of it and more seeing that this is not a political thing. Yeah, that could, that could be part of the solution. It, but, but I think all of those official residences uh, really do belong to all of us as Canadians, as taxpayers. We should all feel a sense of ownership. Uh, and it, it's interesting that our, our, the structure in Canada, unlike the structure in the U.S., uh, there is a lack of statutory protection and sort of real protection for these important places that are that are owned and controlled by the federal government. Um, and actually, as we speak, uh, we know that the Minister of Canadian Heritage and the Minister of Environment are both charged with with considering the the kind of protection that we have in place for places owned by the the federal the heritage places owned by the federal government. It, it reminds me, in 2003, the Auditor General of Canada looked at that system and said, you know, unless something changes, these places that are significant to all of us are really at risk for future generations. Um, and, and the Auditor General actually looked carefully at the state of 24 Sussex in 2008 as well. So it's, it's really a long story, and it, it's, uh, it seems like every few years this conversation comes back into the public eye. Uh, and I, I hope that Canadians agree that you know, th- these kinds of symbols of, of our history, uh, they're, they're, they're real touchstones with the past and um, you know, p- places where history really happens. Uh, 24 Sussex has seen, um, I think, 12 prime ministers, including the current prime minister who lived there as a child, if not now. Uh, Winston Churchill, the Queen, the Kennedys, there have been lots of uh, interesting personalities that have moved through that space. And, and it's a real opportunity now I think, to, um, you know, bring new technology to bear. Um, it was interesting that the report talks about the greenhouse gas emissions that these historic properties are responsible for, but there's a real opportunity to improve their energy efficiency and make them real showpieces. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not that they're, it's not just because they're heritage buildings that we have these costs. It really is about making them, investing in them as, as modern assets. 
And you say that the, this comes up every few years and every time it comes up, the dollar amount has gone up exponentially. So next time we hear about this in five years or something, it's probably $70 million that it's going to cost. I mean, that's the way it goes. But that that that's an interesting dilemma though, Natalie, because I I don't know that the... Not, I'm not talking about the property, the the building itself, 24 Sussex Drive. I'm not sure that if you knocked it down and rebuilt it, that it would cost you $37 million to do that. In fact, I'm quite positive it would not cost you $37 million to do that. So is there value then in doing the renovations to fix up a home at a value that is probably more than the value of the home itself? Well, you know, I think... One of the important points in this debate is government leadership on, re, you know, reusing old old buildings. Um, we're, we're at a moment in history with, with climate change bearing down on us that reusing the assets that we have and investing in them, it's, it's, it's really worth doing. Um, we talk about, you know, the greenest building is the building that already exists. And we, we just can't continue to demolish and send materials to landfill and build new. Um, we're at a moment when we do, the government really does need to show leadership and remove the barriers so that all of us can make make the best use of the buildings that are already here all around us. The building does have, as I understand it, and not shockingly, the building does have heritage designation. We hear that with buildings in a variety of places that it has heritage designation. What does that actually mean as far as a renovation or an upgrade? How would that impact any kind of renovation? Well, buildings that have heritage value are, I mean, the point of designation is to kind of look carefully at the values that those buildings represent and to make decisions that, that, that bring those values forward, you know, bring them into the future with us. And the the values are not always physical. So, um, you know, and I, I think we there, there's a misconception that that heritage buildings are kind of frozen in time, and you have to bend over backwards to save every every piece of them. And that's not always the case. And and I think with a building like 24 Sussex that has been really heavily modified over the years, um, it's it's had sections added to it and changes made, and as we know, left left to deteriorate to a certain extent. Um, I, I think there would be quite a bit of flexibility to introduce new, you know, new materials, new finishes, new systems, um, you know, better en- energy efficiency. It, it's there is a real opportunity there to, um, you know, br- bring new design, like make it a real showpiece, while still bringing what's important about its values um, with it into the future. And, and I think you just nailed exactly what I think a lot of people perceive as the heritage designation, that if you're going to fix it up, it must look and be exactly as it was, not a not a scintilla of it can be changed. And of course, you look at a building like this, and one of the things they point to is there's no central air conditioning at 24 Sussex Drive. Well, if you were going to do that and put that in, you're probably going to have to run ductwork, which is going to change some things here or there. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to modernize without some kind of changes. Right, and and there are there are conservation architects and engineers who have dedicated their careers to really understanding the best way to to modernize uh, and upgrade uh, these kinds of buildings. So there there are ways to do it sensitively, and I, I think that the greater the heritage value of a property, the the you know the 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 more history it holds, the the greater effort we would want to invest in in preserving as much of the authenticity of the place as we can. 
but but again, you know, the stories uh, are as important as the physical, the physical elements of the building. And so, um, again, be, being being a bit flexible and um, tre- treating it as a, a really um, interesting, creative uh, challenge, I think, is, uh, mm. is is the real opportunity. And, and yeah, and, and you know, the heritage thing, and we've had it here in Hamilton. We've had situations, and one of the one of the real challenges is that if you that you want to preserve the history, but if you are so rigid on preserving the history, you make it so costly that nobody can then afford to preserve the history. I mean, there has to be some sort of give and take in this to make it feasible. Right. But, but we do know that people really value authenticity and those traditional materials. Often those, the original materials are incredibly high quality, you know, first growth lumber in, in old windows and, you know, the limestone walls in that building are, are really worth investing in and, and treating properly. Who would do, I mean, I know there are companies and, and contractors that do this kind of stuff, but is it a very specific um, kind of work that only certain people could do, or is this something that you could put out a bid and get a wide, wide range of people across this country who may be interested in working on this and maybe get that price down? <laughs> well, uh, I am sure that there are mechanisms in place to make sure that 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 highly qualified uh, designers and contractors uh, would would be. Um, attracted to work on on buildings like these um there, there you do need to um, have some experience and, and specialized training uh, and we know that um, for some of the trades work as well um it's a it's a limestone exterior the 24 sussex specifically is a limestone building so having someone who knows exactly what you know what's the right mortar mix to repair that that stone facade so that you don't do damage to it with the wrong kinds of materials those, those are all um, specialized skills. And I think, you know, one, one of the, another area of leadership for the federal government is to do projects like these in a really public way. Um, because many, many of us who own older buildings need access to tradespeople who know how to repair old windows and to, you know, repoint, repoint older brick. Uh, and so the, the more work there is out there in the system, uh, the more incentive there is for people to to you know study these heritage trades or get experience as apprentices. Um, it, it's again, as I said, it's reusing existing and older buildings is probably one of the most important things we need to our, you know our policies and practices need to promote now. Let me throw something crazy at you here that I saw this written somewhere, and it, I, this may have even been what prompted me to want to talk to you about this. Um, it's a great story regardless, but the idea that so many Canadians are not really familiar with Sussex Drive that wouldn't have maybe have never seen video inside or photos or whatever, it's its a very well-known address, but not a very well-known visual. And the suggestion was, you know what, why not have it turned into to do the work properly, but have it turned into a TV show to do it. I mean, you know, whether it's HGTV or something like that, have it as an opportunity to not only get the building redone, but ex- but show the building to Canada. Is that too lowbrow for a building that's as austere as this one, or is that an idea that could actually have some legs? I think it's a great idea. And I think, um, you know, I, I think I've seen a film that um, Jacqueline Kennedy uh, things that she did um, when when she was renovating the White House, really really inviting 
uh, Americans in to appreciate and understand that building. So I, I think anything that could raise its public profile and and really make us all as Canadians feel a sense of ownership of that important uh, residence would be a good thing. Yeah, you know what? I like as ludicrous as the comparison is. They on HGTV they just did that show where they redid the Brady Bunch house, and you know I know the Brady Bunch house and Twenty Four Sussex Drive are not the same thing. I'm, I'm not I'm not that out <laughs> to lunch, but but the the point was the ratings were enormous, and it really it brought people back to that story into that thing. And I, I look at that and I go, I'm not suggesting they do an HGTV schlock show, but somehow to reintroduce 24 Sussex to Canadians would, as you say, would make it matter and then would maybe justify some of the millions of dollars that are going to be required to spend. I think you're, I think you're right. It, it, it is. I mean, as, as we learn more about these places, um, we, we value them more. We hope so, because a lot of these, as I say, I read off the six, and I bet you that a good chunk of the audience could not tell you anything about the farm, for example. Uh, in fact, I bet you the majority couldn't, because they've probably never heard of it or never seen it, and that's kind of a shame. But uh, Natalie Bull, Executive Director for the National Trust of Canada, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. It is an interesting idea. I don't. Could you, could you, could you picture that? Could we do an HGTV Canada series like they did with the Brady Bunch house where we fix up Sussex Drive. You bring in all the Canadian, the property brothers and the farm fixers from this area and all the others. Could you bring all them in? And you'd have to have other people as well, historic, but could you, could you turn 24 Sussex Drive's rebuild into a five or 10 part series on HGTV that would make people be reintroduced to that landmark? I think there are people who would probably blanch heavily at that idea because that's just, that's gauche. That's lowbrow. But uh, why not? Everything else is online and on TV and vis- visible now. Why not? You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the 4th of July, the American, 4th of July, the American holiday, they always have the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Competition. And there is a guy who is a bit of a legend, more than a bit of a legend. He is a legend in the eating world, which is a really weird sentence. I understand that. Nonetheless, he is a legend and has won the thing 13 times times going into yesterday. Yesterday, he made it 14 times. Joey Chestnut is his name. Set a new world record by eating 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. That's one down the gullet every eight seconds or so. Hot dog and bun. And I will say this, uh, I usually do my show in the evenings here on CHML and a couple for the last few years, every July, well, every show right after July the 4th, whoever has been sitting in the operator's chair, I have brought in a platter of hot dogs and given them 10 minutes to see how many they can eat. And, you know, Ben, who's off and on, Ben's a big boy and Will who's on often wills on today. Will, I think has done this. He's, you know, he can, he can put the food away and they get to six, maybe. And all of a sudden it's like, no white flag. I'm out six. 76 is what this guy ate yesterday, which always makes me wonder what does that do to the human body? Hmm. My guess would be nothing good. <laughs> I want to bring in Laura DeSanctis, a wellness expert, holistic nutritionist, and digestive health coach. Thanks for doing this, Laura. I really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. 
Uh, no problem. I mean, that's a really great question. What exactly does it do to the body? I don't know if a lot of people are ready for this, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, as first of all, as wellness, as a wellness expert, holistic nutritionist and digestive health coach, I'm guessing we can make an assumption. There has never been an attempt to eat 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes oh. by you. Not that I've known. Um, I know that the winner, I know that this particular winner that you're referring to, I think um, he beat, like you said, his world record because it was like 68 or 69 a few years ago, but 70 plus hot dogs, like that is just crazy. (laughs) I mean, I know it's an American staple, but 76, like that is mind blowing. And it's quite scary because of just all the ingredients that are in hot dogs. Oh, yeah. And how toxic they are, especially with corn syrup, uh, high fructose corn syrup, and that's a main staple. So there's GMO corn. And then a lot of people don't realize this, but there's a lot of processing and sugar that's been added to a hot dog. So even if you're having just one hot dog in itself, um, there's tons of GMOs in there, pesticides that are wired in there, the corn syrup and the sugar. So um when you have a hot dog, sometimes when you eat it, and it may not be with the ketchup and mustard, just the hot dog alone has a sweet taste because of all the sugar and the corn syrup in it. So that in itself, as a wellness expert, I always tell people to stay away from because sugar in itself increases the risk of diabetes and cancer and heart disease. But that's two main ingredients, the corn syrup and the sugar, where I tell people stay away from when it comes to hot dogs. Well, and not every hot dog. I mean, some of them are made with higher quality meats, but you know, not all are from the prime pieces of the animal. Sometimes you're eating hoof and snout, which is, you know, probably not exactly the most delicious either. Uh, Let's start with, and I want to get to those ingredients and what problems they cause, but just before, because I mean, obviously the first thing I think most people think about with this is just the the sheer volume of trying Mm -hmm. to put 76 hot dogs into a stomach, uh, the average human stomach in its normal state could no, no average human stomach could handle that amount of food. No, could it? not at all. No, not at all. So what happens with a lot of these competitors is they actually train their body um, because a lot hot dogs, what happens is they can cause painful like binging cramps um, with competitive eating. They get a lot of nausea, painful gas, vom- vomiting, heartburn, diarrhea, all those things that we don't want to talk about. But especially when it comes to eating uh, the way these competitors do, they do something called, this technique called swallowing um, or chipmunking, where they puff their cheeks out as much as they can to get um, their mouth full of food. And they gulp it it down in like big bites of food. And then they follow this by sips of water. So that's definitely not um, for the average person. They wouldn't be able to handle this. Their esophagus wouldn't be able to handle this. And um, with all that gas bloating, the indigestion, they would just, well up. So the esophageal pipeline will fill up, but these competitors really train their esophagus and their stomach to binge like this. I think anybody who has, and I'm embarrassed to even use this uh, example, but here we go. I think anyone who has ever seen an episode of say my 600 pound life has seen on TLC. And if you have, you know what I'm talking about, um, has, has seen a stomach that has been stretched beyond what is normal. But I mean, how does the stomach retract ever once you've stretched your stomach to the point where it can handle this much food, does it ever go back to normal or is it permanently stretched out? That's a great question. I think when you're involuntarily this, this bundle of muscles at the lower end of your esophagus, um, it's going to prevent acid and prevent getting your stomach stretched out. But over time, even with these competitive eaters, um, 
relaxing your muscles and they just become so lax that you will need surgery. So with competitive eating, they stretch and relax their stomach to fit in more food, uh, large amounts of food. But that's usually only, you know, it's done over a period of time. It's not all the time. Whereas sometimes when we see in those shows, that's been a longer term where these people are morbidly obese um, and it's, they would need surgery for their stomach to uh, hold back. So it's very alarming that this is even still a sport. I'm not even sure how it's a sport, but it's pretty <laughs> crazy what um, how it can really affect our body and and even our lower esophageal sphincter because it won't necessarily contract anymore. Well, and, and not only that, I would have to imagine that at a certain point you're putting so much food into yourself mm-hmm. that some of it is being not to be really gross, but some of it is being pushed on into the system without any digestion at all because you can't just hold everything in there. That's right. So when we normally um, eat and when we even think about chewing gum, you'll notice like as you start chewing gum, your mouth is going to start creating saliva because your body starts, everything's connected. Um, The brain-gut connection, we hear about this a lot. So as soon as you put something in your mouth, your body automatically starts to produce saliva, so it's going to start breaking down the food a lot easier. But when we're consuming food, as competitors are in like those huge amounts, you're not going to break down the food as much, so you're going to get the, the nausea, the gassing, the burping, because the saliva isn't there to produce it. Yeah, and, and, and I just, I can't imagine that the average person, and look, no average person is eating 676 hot dogs, but even if we were to really push it, like even if we were to go, to, as I said before, I've had my operators on the show as a joke, try to eat as many as they could, and we get to six or seven or eight and they tap out. Even if you pushed it to a point of being so uncomfortable and we said, let's go for 10, mm-hmm. I, have to, I have to think that at some point the average person's gag reflex is going to kick in that wouldn't even let you do this. That's right. I mean, or your abdomen is going to appear really flat. Um, so you'll notice that there's going to be protruding in the stomach um, when you're eating or when you eat too much. And you have to, a lot of people have to like undo their pants because it's, your stomach can't handle it. So what would really happen is that the upper, upper stomach is going to expand to accept the food. But after a while, you may probably throw up or be nauseous because there's way too much food that the, and the body and the, the stomach can't digest it. All right. So he, yesterday, the stats say, and and I'm going just by what's written here. I haven't done the math. I'm going by what I've seen. The stats say that yesterday he ate roughly 22,000 calories worth of hot dog and bun. What's the average, what's the expected or the preferred human caloric intake for a day? Um, It really depends on um, your health goals and your body type, but it would be between... 1,800 to 2,200. If you're active, it could be 2,500, but that could be a lot. Um, but yeah, like for having that amount of not even the calories, but the sodium in itself um, really scares me and how much food in itself. So the average human stomach size um, that can really fit food is really like two fifths and maybe a liter or so of volume. And then eating that many hot dogs um, and having your stomach expand like that on top of adding the sugar, the nitrates, the sodium. I mean, that's just a huge recipe for disaster. Uh, okay, you've mentioned the, the, the those things a few times. So here's the numbers. Uh, 1,500 grams of fat, 2,600 <laughs> grams of cholesterol, 55,000 grams of sodium. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing not because, I mean, it's ridiculous and it's gross, but it's also, those are staggering numbers. What does the body do with that? Yeah, I mean, there's tremendous risk associated with a just stuffing your stomach to its capacity, even if it's just one time because you can rupture your stomach. Um, but then also, like, what he's digesting. So, 
again, there's tons of research that says that nitrates are really bad for you, the sugars that are bad for you, um, the GMOs in the corn or in the syrup. So, And then it's also the factory farm meat. And this is something that I wanted to just get into before I talk about the nitrates and, and the sugar and the sodium. So the factory farm meat, when it's conventional, um, pigs are scavengers. I'm not sure if a lot of people know this, but they eat a lot of rotted fruit with parasites and worms in it. And they pretty much eat everything. So factory farm meat, primarily what it is, it's, it's pretty much like parasites that pigs carry. And it's it's pretty toxic meat. Um, so I would really stay away from that. And then we're, when we're talking about nitrates, they're really full of chemicals. And what can happen from a digestive perspective is it can increase your risk of gut damage and autoimmune disease because hot dogs are full of nitrates, full of phosphates, which... Again, it's chemicals, again, linked to nausea and vomiting, and then the fillers, the corn syrup, other fillers, the GMOs that really give it that fluffy texture of a hot dog. But again, it's horrible for your digestive system. Tons of chemicals in farm pork, the GMOs, the corn, the soy, and then, of course, the sodium. But when you're putting that much into your body all mm-hmm. at once... Does your body, is, is it really, is all that really going to absorb or are you going to expel it before it really has time to break down and all that bad stuff gets into your body? I mean, I in other words, think. is it just, is it just on a quick passage through because it can't, your body can't possibly break it all down? There's no way. I don't think your body can break it all down based on all the research that I've seen. Usually what happens is that, and even with competitive eating, there's going to be the nausea, the nausea, the painful gas, the vomiting, the heartburn, the diarrhea. So your body won't be able to break it all down. It's going to expel it as, as quick as it can because it's, the body's going to feel like it's an attack on the body, um, especially the muscles in the, in the stomach that are it can possibly spasm because they're not used to that much type of food. But you raise a really good point. Um, would you be consuming or would you be, even though you're eating this food, this hot dog, would you be processing all these harmful ingredients? No, not necessarily, but it is something to be mindful of for sure. What about the idea now, obviously, if this was your lifestyle, mm-hmm. clearly we would look at this and go, wow, that's a real problem. If, if you're doing this every day and, you know, uh, we see again, these TV shows, we see people who probably, um, you know, eat way, 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 way more than they need to. But what if you're someone like this who, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, once every three weeks goes in a competition. So we'll call it, I don't know, occasional gluttony. Well, I mean, does that make it any less problematic that you're just doing it once in a while? Um, I think if it's someone that enters a competition, I still think it's bad for you because nitrates, nitrites, so there's so many chemical compounds in hot dogs and there's been so much research as to how unhealthy hot dogs are. So let's say if you are going to be eating like this and it's hot dogs, um, I don't think a lot of people realize that these nitrates are salts that actually convert into cancer-causing agents when they come in contact with the stomach. So, I mean, you never hear of these competitions where people are just eating fruit or vegetables that as something healthy, <laughs> which is unfortunate. That's a, that's, why don't we have that? I don't know. Why don't we have that? Why don't we have a kiwi eating competition? Right? That's, or how about kale? <laughs> oh, okay, wait. Now, beans, now, like, now, wait a second, Laura. Now you've pushed it way past the <laughs> bounds of good taste. Any kale healthy. eating competition will make everybody, well, some of us sick. Um, okay, but no, but it's you're, you're right, though. It's like you look at the, uh, I got to find this whole while you're talking. They've got a list here of the, the records that this guy holds, that Joey Chestnut holds, the guy who did this. Um, and I won't go through all the totals. Buffalo chicken wings, glazed donuts, jalapeno poppers, Philly cheesesteaks, pork ribs, poutine, shrimp wontons, Twinkies, 
none of those are, as you say, nobody's saying peeled grapes or apple slices or banana pieces. No, it's unfortunate because um, in any of those competitions, there's so many starch and the bad fats, omega six and the saturated fats. So we're over consuming or these people are over consuming the fats, the salt and the sugar. And that's a recipe for disaster. That's the recipe for obesity. So um, there's a lot of strict guidelines, which the American Heart Association gives in terms of saturated fats. And when we look at these competitions, they always surpass the saturated fat intake. Always. You know, I, I'm just, I'm stuck on what you just said, because I think it's such an interesting point that I don't know the answer to is that why, why are none of these things healthy things that they would have for these eating competitions? Because why would it not be just as intriguing to find out how many grapes somebody could eat or, or how many, I mean, I know they've done bananas before, uh, but it, it, it's a really good point. Why must it be that all these competitions, if you're going to eat this volume, why not yeah. make it something that at least it's not terrible? I suppose it's still That's bad right. to eat anything in that quantity, but uh, I don't know. It's a great question. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I would love to see, you know, a, a watermelon eating contest or something that's really healthy because there's not going to be the negative effects um, that would include the weight gain, the diabetes, or saturated fats, bring that on, those extra calories uh, that we see in these, in, these high, um, in these diets filled with high sodium, high fat. So, yeah, hopefully maybe that will change. But I think, too, one of the biggest things we need to consider when we're looking at these um, unhealthy eating competitions, especially when it comes to hot dogs and the saturated fats, is that what happens with saturated fats is they end up being stored around the liver, and that causes insulin resistance and can also lead to diabetes. That's something that I wanted to mention as well. It's amazing to me that, and I know there's a reason for this, they talk about it, that most of these eaters, these competitive eaters are slim. And there's a reason because they say, you know, people who are heavy, there's not enough room for their stomach to expand because of the fat layer. Nonetheless, it's always amazing to me that they are still skinny. And the second thing is, Laura, we got to run, but I, I really think you've stumbled onto a brilliant idea here. You need to host an eating competition with healthy foods only. Tofu, a tofu eating competition on the on July 1st next year. I need to host it. We can host it together. Now, there we go. We can do it live on the air. Anyone interested in having a tofu eating competition, maybe a small field, but I'm sure there are people out there who would do it. We'll find something. Laura DeSantis, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. Uh, It is a little bit gross. There's no question about that. It's fascinating. It's one of those things that it's one of those you kind of can't not watch when these people are doing this stuff. At the same time, you're like, ugh. Oh, and, and yes, I know the obvious question that I did not ask, uh, didn't want to ask Laura about it because it's just really gross. I don't know what the next day is like. <laughs> let's, let's just leave it at that. Although I'm sure that Joey Chestnut and the others clear their schedules the next day <laughs> and buy a really good magazine because they're going to be busy. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.